on this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. Tourism is one of the last expressions of colonialism. It is a colonial occupation of places. What we have seen in 500 years is clearly the abuse of hospitality. We have the classical example that uh, Motsuma was uh, hosting with all his capacity, with the great honors Cortés. He was hosted in the palace of Moctezuma, and he took Moctezuma prisoner mm. in his own palace. That was an uh, abuse of hospitality. And we have 500 years of abuses. Welcome to the end of tourism, a podcast about wanderlust, exile, and radical hospitality. For some, tourism can entail learning, freedom, or financial survival. For others, it means the loss of culture, land, and lineage. Our conversations explore the unauthorized histories and consequences of modern travel. They are dispatches from the resistance. Our guest today is Gustavo Esteva, a deprofessionalized social activist, author, and elder. He is the co-founder of La Universidad de la Tierra, the University of the Earth, and the Center for Intercultural Encounters and Dialogues, located in Oaxaca, Mexico. Gustavo has authored and edited over 40 books, including Grassroots Postmodernism, Remaking the Soil of Cultures, Escaping Education, Living as Learning Within Grassroots Cultures, and The Future of Development, a Radical Manifesto. I first met Gustavo in 2015 at the Unitiera Oaxaca in southern Mexico. I had long heard incredible stories of Gustavo through a protege of his, Michael Sacco, a close friend and the founder of Choco Soul Traders in Toronto, Canada. Like Michael, I was invited into the philosophies and lived expressions of interculturality, hospitality, and local resilience that Gustavo and his work so deeply embodies. I sat down with Gustavo in his house on the edge of a small Zapotec town to discuss the legacy of tourism in Oaxaca, how tourism is an extension of the colonization of the Americas and the consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic. We touch on the differences between tourists and immigrants. Finally, we delve into interculturality itself, radical hospitality, the philosopher Ivan Illich, and the Zapatistas of Chiapas, Mexico. Part one is entitled, The Conquest and the Great Escape. So welcome to the show, Gustavo. Hi, Chris. Good to see you. We usually start the show by asking our guests if they would be willing to offer our listeners a little understanding of where we find ourselves today and where we find ourselves in the world and perhaps in our lives as well. I, I have really the privilege that in this, that is one of the worst moments in human history, I am in a very good moment because apparently I will finally have the opportunity to process my stuff. I have published a lot of books and essays and articles, but most of what I have written in the course of my life is still unpublished and dispersed and requires revision and polishing. And I have been promising myself for almost 20 years to do that. And I have been unable to do that. And this is apparently the moment in which I will finally be able to do that. Hmm. Well, I look forward to that and, you know, I've uh, over the years been honored to hear you speak and to read many of those writings as well that have not been published as of yet. So uh, I very much look forward to that and may there be something for our listeners as well in the time to come that they might uh, read a little more of, of your work. Great. In time, I will have a web page uh, where I will put all, all that stuff. I will publish a few books, but basically I will have most of the stuff in the web. Mm. Well, I'll make sure that as soon as that website uh, shows up in the world, that it'll be ready for our listeners and, and for the world as well, via the end of tourism. Great. So here we are in Oaxaca, in San Pablo Etla, 
And, you know, you've been here in Oaxaca for at least a few decades now. Yes. In a sense, it is my whole life because I settled here the last 30 years. But I was coming since when I was a child because my family comes from here. Mm. And I was coming to visit my Zapotec grandmother to this place when I was eight years old or something like that. Mm. <sighs> since your return to Oaxaca... And over the course of the previous decades, many have come to know you as an elder and a vanguard for the social movements here in the state. During that time, you founded the UNITIERA, or the Universidad de la Tierra, the University of the Earth. Could you tell us a bit about how that organization came into being and how it has evolved since then? Yeah, it is very interesting, in fact, because we had already one small organization basically for intercultural dialogue and uh, trying to see how we can interact people of different cultures and learning that it is not just to talk, it's not just conversation, it's not trying to have a kind of understanding, but doing things together. Then in the 90s, I was involved with many people in different communities, participating with them in different activities, trying to learn how to interact, how to create interculturality as a reality, not as a dream or a possibility, but something we, we can really interact in the real world. And then in that kind of situation, I was participating in an indigenous state forum, that met periodically to present publicly one idea, uh, one position, one proposal to the society. And after one year of discussion in assemblies in the communities, the forum declared in 1997, the school has been the main tool of the state to destroy the indigenous people. And that was, of course, an historical truth. That was how in the 19th century they created education, the educational system, to de-Indianize the Indians. That was the purpose of the system of education. The majority of the people in that time were Indians in Mexico, and then they wanted to de-Indianize them. To be an Indian was a problem for the government in that time. And then they wanted true education to de-Indianize the indigenous people. And in a sense, they succeeded with many millions of people that entered the educational system as indigenous people and came out as something different, very strange, that we don't know exactly what it is. Mm. Uh, but then at one point, many indigenous people survived that process. And uh, in 1997, they said enough, said enough is enough. We don't want more of this. And some communities started to close the school. You, you can imagine the reaction. Front page in the papers. These barbarians, they are doing their children to ignorance. This cannot be the autonomy. We need to do something. And they put a lot of pressure on them. And some communities survived, resisted the pressure. Then after two or three years, uh, one very good anthropologist, very well known in Oaxaca, decided to teach a lesson to the parents. Uh, and then he prepared some tests to compare children going to the school with children not going to the school. To tell the parents, this is what you are doing, your poor children, leaving them behind. Mm. <clears throat> For his surprise, and the surprise of everyone, after the tests were applied, the children not going to the school knew better how to cultivate the milpa and how to be in the community and to participate in the fiestas and everything that were very well rooted in their communities. They were better in everything that a school supposedly teaches. They were better in reading, writing, arithmetic, geography or history, meaning that in their homes, in the community, they were learning in freedom better than in the school. With one exception, the children 
um, going to the school knew how to sing the national anthem. The others don't. <laughs> that was their only advantage. That illustrates very well the idea of the school, the idea of education that was created with the nation state and at the service of the nation state. But these same communities with whom we were working and were very happy with this uh, outcome, after some time they came with us and expressed their concern. What would happen with our, our young men and women that want to continue their studies about something that no one in the community knows because they don't have any diploma? They will not be able to continue studying outside the community. And then with them and for them, we created UNITERRA. It's a coalition of indigenous and non-indigenous people where young men and women from the communities can come to UNITERRA and learn whatever they want to learn. They don't need any diploma and they will not get diplomas. We, we offer them a diploma of UNITERRA, but we are not registered. We don't have teachers. We don't have courses. We don't have curriculum. Uh, we adopted the principle of learning by doing. And then if a young man comes and uh, we say that they must have more than 18 years old uh, and knew uh, how to read and write before coming to UNITERRA. Then if someone comes and said, I want to become an agrarian lawyer, we will send him the next day with an agrarian lawyer. And he will learn how to be an agrarian lawyer being an agrarian lawyer, doing the job, doing the activities of an agrarian lawyer every day. Of course, with the support of some books and, and some consultations, etc. In our experience, a young man can come and become a very good agrarian lawyer after more or less 18 months. He knows nothing about civil law, penal law, uh, labor law, all the different branches of law. But he knows everything he needs to know to present the case in a, in a court. That will be the proof that he is ready, that he presents a, a case in a court and wins it. And then uh, he's ready to participate, to become an agrarian lawyer. That usually when these young men come for that purpose, is basically for protection of their own communities. They are in trouble. They have agrarian problems. They have been always abused by lawyers. And then they want to have the preparation to defend their communities. And that, that is exactly what they get. And our first generation of students destroyed uh, the remains of uh, a curriculum. And the most popular area was popular communication. They wanted, of course, the young people want to have a radio and to learn about that kind of things. And then we said something, well, in the first year, they'll need to produce a, a pamphlet, to produce a radio program, to produce a video, to, to learn different kind of things. All of them at one point stopped and said, oh, this is my life. This is exactly what I want to do. For example, one guy decided video is my thing. I don't want to learn any other thing but video. I want to do video the rest of my life. And by the way, he is the best uh, video producer in Oaxaca today. Wow. He, he has dedicated all his life to video and he produced all kinds of videos. Um, he, he's a very, very good um, video producer. He's an artist and, and he even won several national awards because of his production. This is the kind of things. After a few years, we discovered that some young people could not come to the city of Oaxaca, where we are, because they did not have family or friends here. And then they don't have the money to pay for food and, and, and lodgement. And then we decided to go to the communities. That was Greece a real blessing. That changed the nature of, uh, of UNITERRA. We started to go to the communities to learn with them what they want to learn. It can be something very simple. For example, we don't have water. Uh, we need to do something because there is not enough water. Mm -hmm. Even when it rains, it is not enough. And then we go with the commission of them. We go to another community where they have solved that problem. And then they see the technology or whatever, and they say, oh, yes, that is exactly what we need. 
and then we learn with them how to do that in the community. Sometimes the problem is a little more complex. They they tell us, well, because of the current situation in Oaxaca and in Mexico and the world, our young men and women cannot continue their studies. They cannot, because we don't have resources to support them, and they cannot find any kind of job, even of waiters in a restaurant. They cannot find how to produce their own, their, their own life. Um, they cannot migrate to the United States anymore. Mm. Uh, and then they are tempted by the cartels and the criminals. They start with a little assault here, a little assault there. And then after some time, they enter into the world of, of crime. We need to stop that, but we don't know what to do. And then we work with them, we learn with them how to create an alternative for the young people. Of course, that's not easy. That is not like the problem of water mm. and that just building some technology. It is something different, more complex. And that is what we learn with them, how to deal with their daily problems and learning with them um, how to live this very difficult uh, time in the world. Well, it's a, an incredible uh, legacy that you've uh, founded here. And uh, I'm very honored to have been witness to it for the last five or six years here in Oaxaca. It may continue to grow in a good way. Yeah. Speaking of Oaxaca, we all know very well here that uh, this the city, at the very least, if not many of the towns in the state, have for a long time been tourist destinations. But in the last maybe five or six years that it has become over-touristed. Given the fact that your grandmother lived here and you know, you've been living here permanently for the last few decades, how have you seen the city and its people and its culture change over time as a result of tourism? Well, I will say uh, very clearly that there are two different phases. One is the invention of Oaxaca around 1928. Oaxaca was a wide collection of different people, different cultures. And, and there was not something like the Oaxaca spirit or the Oaxaca tradition. And then there was a moment in which the Mexican government was trying to unify the Mexicans uh, after the revolution. After the revolution, they were very different revolutionary factions in Mexico. And then they created this very famous party, the first incarnation of the dominant party that uh, governed in a very authoritarian way for the next 70 years in Mexico. Uh, in 1928, they were trying to do something similar in every state. And in a very real sense, it was the invention of Oaxaca. And the first time that they created something like a political party, really a, a, a real political party in Oaxaca, it has 37 different factions <laughs> because there were many different ideas and ideologies and, and interests and, and projections and, of course, the many different cultures of Oaxaca. Yeah. And uh, then they decided to do something for unification. In 1928, they invented the Fiesta of the Gelaguetza. That Gelaguetza was a very old tradition for centuries. The different peoples of Oaxaca came together to this specific hill in the city of Oaxaca for a traditional celebration and a change. They were bringing what every people were producing, pineapples or coffee or different kind of things. They were bringing for a change. It was not selling it was a real change. It's a gift for the others, for the other uh, peoples. It was a traditional celebration in which the people came together for that change. And then they decided to transform that in a special celebration, in a formal celebration, uh, to unify Oaxaca, to bring um, dancers and to bring a lot of things for that celebration 
that was trying to create a unifying spirit. I would say that that campaign was very successful, that today you can talk about Oaxaca and many people are very proud of being people from Oaxaca. Mm. Oaxaqueño is something very important and there are many Oaxaqueños, 300,000 in California, that are very proud of being Oaxaqueños. Mm. And it is something that uh, many people say, yes, I am mystic, but I am mystic of Oaxaca. Mm-hmm. And that, that is something to be proud of. Of There is something like uh, Oaxaca's gastronomy that is very famous and very appreciated. There are some clothes, some specific repilies that are very Oaxaca. And then there are many things that are now associated with Oaxaca and Oaxaca accepts. At the beginning, uh, it became that Gelaguetza a very important touristic attraction. But it was not a massive flow of tourists. It was just uh, some of them were coming in July for the celebration, and it became a tradition. And then they created hotels for them. Oaxaca in that time was a very small city. It has almost no hotels. And then those were created in the 30s to host this um, small amount of tourists coming every year, uh, and then staying, and then also started to come in December for other fiestas of, of the city of Oaxaca. But it was not a massive flow of tourists. They really did not affect the situation of the city and the condition. Of the, the city was still for the people of Oaxaca, <clears throat> not for tourists. I have seen that uh, precise change in the last 30 years. Still, when I came 30 years ago, uh, the city was our city. Um, You see, the main plaza, our Zócalo, uh, was basically occupied by the people of Oaxaca. Many people living in Oaxaca, they, they were crossing the Zócalo every day, even if it was not necessary for their activities to go to the Zócalo. They was kind of, of deviation of the normal path to be in the Zócalo, to enjoy the Zócalo, to enjoy our plaza. It was really our plaza. It was one uh, space in common that we enjoyed together. And that was really Oaxaca. We had a very conservative class, and that was great. (laughs) They owned the historical center, and because they were very conservative, they established some rules. For example, you cannot build a a building of more than three floors, these kind of things. And they protected all the constructions of the the time of the, uh, the colonial period. And it was really a very beautiful, one of the most beautiful cities of of Mexico and of the world, in fact, Uh, and very, very well protected, very well conserved because of the conservative class uh, owning it. Then in the last 30 years, that kind of spirit, that kind of condition began to be destroyed because the city was transformed in a city for tourists. And then we had a massive flow of tourists every year, particularly in two moments, in July during the summer time. And in December, we have been literally invaded by tourists. Step by step, the people in the city started to change their activities. We could see that last year when the pandemic closed the city for tourists and there was no tourists coming. And suddenly it was not only the waiters of the restaurants or the people working in the hotels, but thousands and thousands producing handicrafts for the tourists, organizing some services. The, the, the whole city was living for the tourists. This is also infected us in different ways. It was changing habits. Let me give you one example. One of our last struggles to protect our city was when uh, they decided to put the McDonald's in the Zócalo, in our main plaza. That was not acceptable. There was already McDonald's near the airport, but not in our plaza, not in the main plaza. And then 
it was all the classes uh, in the city of Oaxaca. We were there with Francisco Toledo sharing some tamales in the plaza and, and a really a very fantastic movement. And then we succeeded and we stopped that. Even you had already the arc. That is how we discovered that the McDonald's, mm-hmm. the golden <laughs> arches, the golden yes, wow. and and then we discovered it, and then we stopped it, and then there there was no McDonald's in the Zócalo. Yes, we protected that, but we could not stop McDonald's, and suddenly there were several McDonald's, and then it was not only for tourists, but also contaminated people of the city of Oaxaca, that despite our fantastic astronomy, our incredible plates of every kind of things, they were going to McDonald's. And you could see young people fascinated with McDonald's. Today, we have been also invaded by pizza and sushi. (laughs) You can see all around Oaxaca, pizzas and uh, pizzerias and and, and sushi restaurants. That is, for me, a kind of offense for this city with that incredible richness of uh, our gastronomy. But this is the effect of of tourism. That is one of the traditional uh, science elements. Tourism is uh, one of the last expressions of colonialism. It is a colonial occupation of places. And because they are, they want to attract the tourists, they adapt the cities and the traditions and everything for the tourists. And the tourists, most of them, are asking for the kind of things they are used to. It's very strange. It's a fundamental contradiction. They're supposedly coming for something different, but they want something of the kind of things they are used to. They want a hamburger, they want a kind of, of thing they are eating at, at home. And then they impose that tradition, they impose that um, kind of behavior because of money, because of the economy of tourism. The uh, society is transformed to have an income from the tourists. Then we accept that position of servants of the tourists. And then part of our dignity is sacrificed for the tourists. Then we change our ways of life, we change our activities, our creative activities, our gastronomy, almost everything at the service of, of tourists. I think that one of the worst uh, impacts is in our traditional hospitality. I think the tradition of hospitality is really a very old tradition. I think most human beings historically has been hospitable. That there is in every people, they have different traditions of how to express hospitality, how to host the, the foreigner, how to express a kind of affection and respect for the foreigner when he or she comes to your place. Uh, that was clearly, in any case, our tradition, the tradition of the peoples of, uh, of what we call today Mexico. And what we have seen in 500 years is clearly the abuse of hospitality, how that hospitality was systematically abused. We have, of course, the classical example that uh, Motsuma was uh, hosting with the, all his capacity, uh, Cortés, he was, Cortés, hosted in the palace of Moctezuma, and he took Moctezuma prisoner mm. in his own palace. And that was typically an uh, abuse of hospitality. Um, then we have 500 years of abuses. We have hosted all kinds of gods, technologies, products, commodities, all kinds of things. And every time they become an abuse of our hospitality and they destroy our things to impose things that are not as good as our own things. And because the people started to see that kind of things in Oaxaca, they started to establish 
something that is a contradiction with hospitality, that is a denial of hospitality, that means imposing rules and limits to the tourists. Some communities in Oaxaca that were very attractive for tourists, and many tourists were coming, and at one point they said, no, this is not possible. And then they said, okay, we will organize the things for a certain number of tourists, no more than this specific number. There are one community which they allow only 10 at the same time. In another community, it's only 40. It is bigger. They can accept 40 tourists, but no more than 40 tourists. If you have the 41, they say, no, sir, you cannot come in. You can come later, but not now because we have the limit. And they establish the very moment they enter the city in one specific place, they tell the person, you cannot throw in the street anything, not even uh, your cigarette after um, smoking it. Yeah. You, you, there are specific places where you can throw anything. And, and it is a very, very clean village because they have many rules for the behavior of the tourists. They organize a specific ways for visiting the, the village. It's not uh, what the tourists decide but it is for the community to decide. This is really a contradiction of hospitality. That is not uh, really hospitality. In hospitality, you open yourself and you open your place for the foreigner. In this case, they are saying, no, no, we, are, no, we cannot be open to you. Mm. You need to adapt to certain rules and we will put some limits in your behavior. You cannot do whatever you want, but there are very clear limits for your behavior. Because... Usually, the tourists feel they can do anything they want. They come with this in mind. They have this construction in the mind that is to be a tourist, to do whatever you want to do. And then they, they are incredibly destructive. And then we, we applied in many communities these specific rules. This was not the case in the city of Oaxaca, that the structure continued in the city in many different ways. Hmm. Well, it's something that came up in my research for this episode was that almost 20 years ago here in Oaxaca, there was a international forum on indigenous tourism. There was indigenous people from 13 countries and from 21 states in Mexico taking part in order to uh, learn from one another how they might be able to engage in some kind of community-led tourism. I have a couple notes here that I'm just going to read for our listeners regarding the conclusions of some of the, the groups in that meeting. They forged what was called the Oaxaca Declaration, and it acknowledged indigenous peoples as internationally recognized holders of collective and human rights with the rights and responsibilities to their own territories and the processes of tourism planning, implementation, and evaluation. A second point of the declaration indicated that tourism is beneficial for indigenous communities only when it is based on and enhances self-determination. A third point states that indigenous peoples must be the natural resource and wildlife managers of their environments. A final recommendation stated that indigenous peoples must establish and strengthen strategies of coordination and information sharing both regionally and internationally, that is, an indigenous tourism network in order to assert participation in initiatives such as these. The Oaxaca Declaration also underscored the need to respect and implement internationally recognized rights and stressed the need for active indigenous participation in policy development and in receiving equitable share of the derived benefits. Uh, so that was 20 years ago. I was there, Chris. I imagine, I imagine. <laughs> and Pierre was one of the organizers of mm. that, uh, that meeting. That was very important for us. Mm. And very, very close friends, indigenous people for coming from different countries. And for us, it was fantastic, really a great. It was a kind of fiesta, Chris, mm. uh, to, to share the, the same problem discussing the same kind of problems and then, then how should we limit our hospitality and not allow this behavior and trying to change things. But I will say something that I think is important. 20 years ago, 
we still had some hope that the governments at the national, international level will do something. And, and then they were presenting claims, and, and we, we, we were presenting massive claims in Mexico and in other parts to say we need some laws, we need some regulations, we need to establish some limits to this operation, we need some international rules to define these kind of things. Today, we know that that was an illusion, that the governments that are associated with the corporations, you, you, you know better than I that uh, a few corporations own the tourists and they move the tourists from one place to the other according with their interests every year. They are collaborating in this destruction of the planet and destruction of cultures and destructions of everything. They, in a very real sense, control the governments. They have, in most cases, the governments other service. They are not protecting the interests of the people, but the interests of these corporations. And it has been literally impossible to create something that is a decent social regulation of this kind of operation. We uh, don't believe that our governments or international institutions will represent a real solution for this and many other problems. And then we have now all thing in our hands, which in a sense is better <laughs> and a lot more effective. Mm. As our communities have been demonstrating, the communities themselves, the system of government at the level of the community can really implement effective regulation of, of tourism. There are some communities very, very well protected in Oaxaca from the tourist invasion. They're, in a sense, still hospitable. And they can invite you and you can come and, and, and they can be open and be hospitable within certain limits. And now it's, uh, if we can say this contradiction in terms, it is regulated hospitality. Mm. Wow. And so, at least in that sense, the, the communities and the people in the communities, if they succeed or if they fail, at least they're responsible yes. for, for their successes or their failures. Yes. And they can learn. Right. They see, they took a decision that was a wrong decision, they learn. This is perhaps the best example in Mexico and the world is the Zapatistas. Theory and praxis. Theory is praxis and praxis is theory. They take a decision and after doing this, they have a reflection. What happened? How was it? Was good? Was bad? What is the outcome? And then they can change and modify their own behavior, their own rules by themselves. And so in that, in that context of indigenous or community-led tourism after the Oaxaca Declaration after 20 years, do you think from the community's point of view that they've succeeded in trying to transform tourism through limits? What's been your experience? In some communities, it's a total success. Yes, some communities have been able to really have a control of this operation. And even in a very real sense, they have succeeded in controlled flow of tourists regularly because those that come to those communities, they really enjoy the experience. Mm. In spite of the limitations at the first moment, they are not so happy. It's very strange for them to have this regulation. But after seeing what happens, they are really hosted beautifully and they can really uh, enjoy the real community, what the community is, what it has, in terms of nature and in terms of the social organization, etc. And they really enjoy the experience. They share the information with others. And then they, these communities are having, even during the pandemic time, some people coming to visit them. Because this is good for everyone. Uh, this is an, a kind of arrangement that is good for everyone. In the case, so during the pandemic, they imposed even more controls. They, they had many communities closed in Oaxaca because of the pandemic. 
and did not allow foreigners to come in. But in certain cases where they have all the rules well established, they have rules for accepting some foreigners under certain conditions. And then because they, they have this experience and uh, they have some successes, and very, very clear successes in protecting the community, protecting nature, protecting the life of the people in the village. And they now have accumulated one experience in that direction. Unfortunately, I don't see that in the city of Oaxaca. In the city of Oaxaca, uh, the pandemic represented really a tragedy for many, many thousands of people. It was really not only those in hotels and restaurants that were many of them were closed, but those having a whole life associated with tourists. I think we need to associate this with what is happening in the world. And I am afraid that after the situation of the pandemic that deprived many people of the possibility of traveling and that they wanted to travel, but they were not allowed to do, to do that, there is a kind of anxiety we can see in the following months, an explosion of, of, of tourism. But I have the feeling, or at least the hope, uh, that this will be not permanent flow. It was just the explosion. We are having many, many forms of this explosion. Mm. After the confinement, many people are going to the street just to go to the street, <laughs> just to have a feeling of freedom. I am sure that we will have something like an explosion. We are already seeing it in some moments and some areas, an explosion of tourism. But my hope is the tradition of tourism as one element of life that became for many people around the world a way of escaping the prison of daily life. <laughs> that after suffering months of working like mad, not only 40 hours a week, but more than 40 hours a week, a job that perhaps you don't like, but that perhaps you even hate, but that is what you need to do to survive, then when the idea of the vacation comes, it is a principle of escaping from that prison. And then you want to go as, as far as possible from that prison. In some places, it has some element of interest that is a kind of civilization. You have Europe when for two months the life is paralyzed. Everybody is in vacation. And then a whole thing is, a, a different kind of life is created in those two months. Mm. It is not necessarily damaging. It is not necessarily destructive, that kind. That vacation is not typical tourism. Uh, it is traditional visits to certain places, traditional ways of life that are for the summer in Europe. Of course, there are also the usual things, but in Europe, the summer is something different. It's now part of a tradition, part of a way of life, and something that the people in Europe protects like mad. They are ready to fight like mad <laughs> to uh, protect these holidays, these two months of holidays. This is not the same in other places like the United States, where they have the schedule of days and weeks where they can go for a trip and they escape. Many people are escaping in the most stupid way for three days traveling a thousand miles, for just three days of being in another place, literally escaping from the prison of the daily life. Mm. And then part of this is that because they are escaping from prison, they feel the need to do in the other place, the place they are visiting, many things that cannot be allowed in their own place, that can be very stupid, very offensive, very inappropriate, uh, immoral, aggressive, etc., etc. They are in a process of liberation for all the strings attached to their own daily life in their own places. And then they, they have very bad behavior as tourists, temporary tourists in many different places. 
in many cases, moved by the corporations. The corporations made some arrangements with local hotels, local restaurants that have a high proportion of the profits for the corporations, telling them, if you don't accept my conditions, I will not bring tourists the next season. Mm. And literally, they do that. Suddenly, Cancun or Puerto Vallarta can be without tourists because the corporations uh, move the tourists to another place where it is more profitable for them. And then I think that whole thing may collapse. That's perhaps one year or two years. After that explosion, people are learning. They are recovering a way of life. Even trying to escape from the, the prison in their own place. Part of the problem, I, I must say, I, I, I will not celebrate Chris this because today it means suffering for many millions of people. They lost their jobs, they lost their source of income, and they will not recover them, never. They are discovering this now, and, and some of them are hungry, some of them are suffering a lot of miseries. They are forced to reinvent themselves to create other way of life. And because of this, because this very impressive change in the conditions of, of living in the whole world, my hope is that the people will find in their own place the opportunities to live without a prison, to live a different kind of life. And they will visit their own place, uh, their forests that they have in their own place, without uh, needing to move far away to escape from that prison. That is my hope, that the classic, typical flop of tourists that defined uh, the situation before the pandemic will not come back. And we are seeing even this in the rearrangement of the whole system of the airlines. Of course, the whole... Uh, thing collapsed in 2020. They are now in the process of recovery, but they are not back in the situation before 2020. I must say, many corporations before the pandemic, they learned to have virtual meetings instead of physical meetings. There was already a trend of many corporations of having virtual meetings instead of physical meetings. And that suppressed a lot of traffic. That was a different kind of tourism. And the people moving for corporate meetings, they were already also doing some kind of, of tourism when they were visiting another city. But that was also suppressed even before the pandemic and more with the pandemic. Many corporations are even suppressing offices uh, because they can have now all the people who work in their home and they, they have their virtual meetings instead of physical meetings. And then that will change. I think that is my hope, the mobility in the world. With one aspect that we must consider as something radically different. I think that migration will continue. That is not tourism. The migrants are going to settle. It's no longer temporary migration. In Mexico, we had a very old tradition of temporary migration. The braceros were going to California for two, three months every year in a very stable way for the people in California and for the people in Mexico. That was a temporary migration. That was just finding a job, an interesting job in another place, a very well-paid job. And that was very good. In a very real sense, I saw this. I, I had that physical experience of a person coming back from California and telling the family, now we have the money for the whole year. We are free and we can do anything we want. And of course, what they were doing is not just uh, doing nothing. They were cultivating the milk, preparing the house. They were very active in these uh, nine months, but they did not have any more, any kind of economic pressure. They have enough money for the whole year with these three months of work. That was a temporary migration, very positive for both parties. 
the farmers in California were getting very good uh, labor force to, to for the crop or for specific activities in a very convenient way. This is not the case today. What do we have? It is massive migration. Perhaps this Comandante Marcos is right, that perhaps in a few years we will have something like a third of the people in the world as migrants. Wow. That as much as that number. Some places are approaching that fear. We are seeing this even in Central America and some countries in Africa. There is a really massive migration, and not only because of the war, like in Syria, we have massive migration because of the wars there. It is countries that are not at war or have internal wars, civil civil wars, but many other cases in which the physical and economic conditions are destroyed. Part of this, it is because of uh, climate collapse. In many places, people can no longer survive because of the collapse of the physical conditions, the natural conditions they, they had. They are forced to migrate. In many other cases, it is economic, social, political conditions that force them to migrate. Then we will have massive migration, but I will not call that tourism. It is a reaccommodation of the people for different kind of conditions. In a very real sense, the migrant, in many cases, is protecting the place more than the locals. <laughs> they try to arrive and to create a place for them and for the rest in, in different conditions. Yeah. How do you think we come to this dynamic of movement in a way that acknowledges escape, right? You mentioned that tourism is a kind of escapism, and for most of my 20s, this is what I did. I was a part-time escapee or tourist or backpacker. That was the underlying reason for my travel, even though I very much wanted to learn about other cultures. I wanted to experience ruins and forests and the natural world, but at the end of the day, it was really a result of not being able to thrive in the economic system that I was living under. In your book, Grassroots Postmodernism, you tell a story of your time in Teposlan, a small town about an hour's drive south of Mexico City. You speak of the hospitality of the Tepozteco people and how their fierce resistance to conquest is the very thing that keeps their hospitality alive. You wrote... The Tepostecos and Tepostecas succeeded in stopping the project designed by developers to rapidly transport millions of tourists to their sacred mountain from Mexico City in 20 minutes or less. They were denounced as foolish for losing the train that could have fully, quote, incorporated them into one of the most modern cities in the world. Your book was written in 1998. Some 15 years later... I passed through Tepoztlan on my way to Oaxaca from Mexico City. I spent only a few days there, but while I was there, I experienced what I considered to be this very hospitality you wrote about. But on my way out of town, on a Friday afternoon, the road leading out was empty, and the road leading in was packed full of cars with tourists from Mexico City. Since then, I have heard that it's only gotten worse, this urban escapism gentrification, and exoticization of Tepoztlan. How can we approach the cancerous growth of cities and our shrinking capacity to live in them in a way that doesn't abandon the skill of home, that is, by leaving it? I would like to say two, two things. One is how Tepoztlan, in spite of that um, massive occupation every weekend, they have still these thousands and thousands of cars and, and tens of thousands of people coming to this small village. Uh, how they have organized it uh, to protect their life. They still have their own life. They still have their own way. They put some limits to this uh, flow of tourists and then they have ways to control what is happening. Yes, they are invaded. Then the life, their normal life is impossible Saturday and Sunday. Mm. But it is interesting how they are 
accommodating this invasion, making it part of the life and protecting their own thing. Still, you have the Teposteco, still you have the mountain there, mm. and they still protect their own things in their own, in their own way, in a very interesting way. And on the other side, I could say that if you live in a monster of 25 million people, life is impossible. No matter what you do, you have some still beautiful neighborhoods, places where you can have something like a good life in that monster. But for most of these 25 million, life, it's terrible. It is impossible. No matter what you do, no matter if you have a good job or morning, you don't need to work. Still, to live today in that monster is it's, it's a horror. You have still in Mexico City people that work for eight hours and spend four hours going, coming and going from the job. And then you have daily journal, 14 hours, because door for four hours in public transportation or even in your own car, it's the horror. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is really impossible. Then I can very well imagine that um, they want to escape as much as possible every week, not, not only in longer periods of vacation, but every week they want to, to, to have another possibility. And then there you have around Mexico City, a lot of places like the Postland, where the people go. In, in fact, uh, Cuernavaca, that very big city now near, near Tepoztlan, Cuernavaca is now a weekend home of a million people in Mexico City, meaning that the Cuernavaca becomes during the weekend twice the size because many people in Mexico City build a house or bought a house in Cuernavaca, and they are going there to spend the weekend. That is the normal life for them. To have a life in Cuernavaca because they cannot have the life in their own place in Mexico City. And then I can imagine that. And of course, I think everybody knows that the only solution for that specific problem is to abandon Mexico City, to reduce Mexico City. You cannot have a decent life with 25 million people. And they are destroying everything. They will not have water. They, don't, they will not have oxygen. They will not have anything. In a real sense, that process is already happening. During the last 15, 20 years, more people are leaving Mexico City than the people that are coming in. The flow of people to and from Mexico City has clearly inverted. In the same way that I started to do that 30 years ago, and then I abandoned it after 50 years of living in Mexico City. I was born there, and I, I enjoyed many things in Mexico City for 50 years. After 50 years, I abandoned Mexico City, thousands and thousands are abandoning Mexico City and other big cities. That is already happening. I think that the big cities will be abandoned. Mm. Um, it is impossible to keep them going. Mm. Uh, right now, they are uh, suffering a lot and, and trying to decide what to do because uh, they are in trouble with water. The main source of water for Mexico City uh, is collapsing and then they will not have enough water to bring to Mexico City. And then that, that is a real crisis, a very serious crisis. And there are not clear solutions for that. Yeah, I've heard similar things from some scientist friends here in Oaxaca that the water crisis basically ensures that people will be forced to leave their homes and forced to find new places to live. It seems the flow of water is predicated on the flow of people. And in Oaxaca, tourism seems to be an enduring cause of drought. The entitlement of tourists means they almost certainly use too much. And, of course, the hotels and Airbnb owners do little to stop it once they're confronted with the the customer service prisons they're locked up in. So more tourism equals less water equals more tension and strife and migration. Eventually this builds up, no? 
people start looking for someone to blame, and the foreigner is often the easiest culprit. Some might blame the local government or even themselves, but by that point, it's often far too late. Local hospitality can turn into local hostility, and that's where I'd like to go next uh, towards hospitality. If that's all right with you, Gustavo. Please, please. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Gustavo Esteva, where we talk about interculturality, radical hospitality, the philosopher Ivan Illich, and the Zapatistas of southern Mexico. Thank you for listening to this episode of the End of Tourism podcast. If what you heard had its way with you, if the arrows hit their mark, click subscribe on Spotify. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. To go deeper, join us at theendoftourism.com and follow us on social media under the handle The End of Tourism. Until then, farewell, friends.